Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 41. And when they had brought them, they set, before, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you tend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And I just wanted to read verses 39 to 41 one more time. That's where we're going to be focusing on. It says, They took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Good morning. Welcome. Um, I'm like paranoid. Last time I preached, Jen said one of my pant legs was up and that she couldn't focus because she could see my hairy calf. So I'm like keeping my hands in my pocket trying to like keep this situation under control. Um, last week, uh, Jen and I and Arlo went on vacation for the first time in maybe like two years. And to make it special, we promised Arlo, we're going to let you eat ice cream and we're going to let you eat a lot of ice cream. And when she hears this news, the only thought in her mind is, man, what flavor should I get? And should I get rainbow sprinkles or should I get regular sprinkles? Now, contrast with me, when I think about eating ice cream, I start worrying and I hear this voice in my head, a moment on the lips, forever on the hips. And if you eat this ice cream, then you can't have a beer at dinner, you can't have fries, and if you get the wrong flavor and Jen and Arlo's looks better, you're going to be jealous. Or even worse, if you get a better flavor than Arlo and Jen, they're going to keep eating your ice cream and you're going to be left feeling hungry and dissatisfied. And what this shows me is that with age, simple pleasures can be buried by cost counting and even paranoia. And over the last few months, I come to realize, sadly, that the older I get, that the fewer places there are to find joy. 
And I'm willing to bet that for many of us, this is also true. I think we spend less and less days waking up going, yes, I cannot wait to tackle all of the things that are up on this day. Instead, I think more of our days start with us snoozing the alarm, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe three times, and thinking to yourself, ugh, I got to do these thousand things today. And if I'm lucky, at night, I'll get 30 minutes to just sit and relax, hey, and start a Korean drama. Unbeknownst to us, joy has become a scarce resource, like lobster at an all-you-can-eat buffet. You look up and suddenly it's gone. And this is a major problem because life without joy is unbearable. Gradually, our hearts fill with worry, our minds focus just on tasks, and we structure our lives to minimize obstacles and inconveniences rather than maximize joy. But that's no way to live. There's no fun in that. Joy is what makes our lives worth living, and other people have noticed this as well. For about 2,500 years, the emotional life was the expertise of philosophers and theologians, people like Aristotle and Saint Augustine, trying to pinpoint what the good life is and how one could live it. Then, turn of the 20th century, there's Freud, and he starts thinking of emotions in terms of psychological terms. Things like deeper motivations and drives and the obstacles that frustrate our desires. And as a result, psychologists tended to focus on negative emotions, things like fear, anxiety, depression, etc. Now, in the last 20 years, something amazing has happened, and there's been an important shift. A group of psychologists and scientists centered in uh, especially Ivy League institutions has started to study positive emotions, things like happiness, hopefulness, and joy. And they have reoriented debates on emotions away from questions like, how can I fix all of the things that are wrong with me, to questions like, how can I live a happier life? And this shift has unleashed an avalanche of interesting studies and statistics. So for example, the happiest country in the world, according to the World Happiness Survey, conducted by the UN, is Finland. And in number two, it is Denmark, two of the coldest, darkest countries in all of the earth, and they're the happiest. America, which has the highest GDP, ranks 14th out of 150 countries. And out of curiosity, I was like, I wonder where uh, my parents' home country, South Korea, is. South Korea, 62 out of 150. China, 82 out of 150. Other things, according to a survey of 2,000 adults, the happiest age for Americans, the age that they wish that time had stopped, is, any guess? 27? Four? No, 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 no. The happiest age is 36. 36. So if you're 36, enjoy it. <laughs> it slips away after that. Even in relationships, happiness has come to be quantified. Happier couples tend to have five positive interactions to one negative interaction. And when you fall under that ratio, then you get into a danger zone. That's what they tell us. But one overwhelming trend that has become obvious with this focus on positive emotions, over the last two generations, across different countries, across different age groups, positive emotions have declined 
while rates of depression, fear, and anxiety have soared. Compared to 1960, the rates of depression are 10 times higher, and the onset of depression is about 12 years earlier, starting at the age of 14. So why is it getting harder to find joy? And more importantly, where can I go to find it? And this passage gives us some surprising answers. But before we get there, let's pray. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time. And when we kind of just get to pause and reflect on what's going on in our hearts and in our life, we realize that there's so many things that are conspiring against us and keeping us locked into this pattern of survival or avoidance of negative things or just fixed on the ground beneath us. But your word tells us that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when there is freedom, then there can be joy. And so my prayer today as we listen to your word is very simple. Fill this room with your spirit. Fill our hearts with the power of your spirit so that we can follow you and experience all of the things that come from knowing you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so just real quick. This passage is not talking about positive emotions in general, but it's talking about one specific emotion in particular, and that is joy. And joy is more than pleasure or superficial happiness. Joy is when we experience something that takes us outside of the present moment. So for example, when I walk in Central Park and I look at all the squirrels and all the kids running around, I take pleasure in the fresh air and I'm happy to be outside. But the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, I was in awe at the way water and time had created something majestic out of sand and dirt. I'll give you another example. Sometimes Arlo <laughs> likes to jam her index finger into my belly button. Or she says, Daddy, open up your armpit. <laughs> and then she jams her finger into my armpit to tickle me. And when that happens, I laugh. But there are times when she's sitting there quietly, staring off into space, very, very rare times where she's sitting there quietly, and I look at her face, and I feel like I catch a glimpse of her future self. And I'm like, oh man, I, I feel like I can see the person she's gonna become. And there, my heart swells with like a, like a quasi-gratitude or quasi-pride. Happiness is like a Popeye's chicken sandwich. It's excellent. It's great. But joy is like Thanksgiving dinner. It ties into tradition. It brings us out of the present moment. Its hallmark is transcendence. And it allows us to experience and feel the world in a more profound way. But if that's the case, why is joy disappearing? I think one of the reasons it's disappearing is because of the places that we typically look for it. I think instinctively, we look to new experiences to bring us joy. For example, a survey of about a thousand British people over the age of 70 asked them, what is the happiest moment in your life? And when you look at the top 10 things that are listed, it's full of firsts. Number one is the birth of the first child. Next is your wedding day, then birth of the grandchild, and then birth of another child, which I'm assuming is like the second child. <laughs> so I'm a second child, and I always knew that I was not that high on the list. But other things come up, like moving into a new home, or seeing your child's first steps, or even your first kiss. And this makes sense. When we experience something new, our horizons expand, 
And we're excited because we get the sense that the world is more than what I thought it was. And that's my theory for why kids are so joyful. Everything is new to them. Any random New York City playground is transformed into a place for conquerors where they can summit Mount Everest just like Edmund Hillary. Riding an elevator is like an enchantment. The doors close, 30 seconds later they open again and you look out and you're transported somewhere new and children's minds are constantly being blown and they're constantly experiencing new things and their well of joy is constantly being filled. Now, new experiences are a great place to look to find joy, but the problem is that as we get older, we turn into jaded and cynical people, like the preacher from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we mutter to ourselves, there's nothing new under the sun. We get to go to a nice, wonderful restaurant, but then the food comes out like two minutes too late, and we're kind of like, what is with this place? I didn't think they served me well because they're racist or something like that. We tend to look at the world cynically, and as we age, just the sheer number of new experiences that are available to us starts to dwindle. And even the ones that are available, they're so expensive, or they take too much time, and they require so much planning that they're almost not worth it. And that brings us to another source of joy, and that is in reliving old experiences. So I listened to this podcast on the Ringer Network called The Rewatchables, and the basic conceit is this, that there's certain movies that when they're on TV, it doesn't matter what part the movie is at, you just have to sit down and watch them over and over again, even if you've seen the movie a thousand times. And revisiting an old experience can be comforting because it gives you the ability to travel back in time and access certain emotions or certain events with a reliable security. Now with a child, I don't get time like to watch a full movie. I'm the kind of guy like if I get that time, I'll watch something that I've seen over and over again. But thank God for YouTube. So I watch like the same five minute clips and I've spent like countless hours watching these clips over and over again. So for sports, I'll watch Aaron Gordon's dunks from the 2016 dunk contest because every time he jumps over the guy on the hoverboard, my mouth drops. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Or I'll watch Cliff Lee's Game 1 highlights from the 2009 World Series because he dominated. And every time I see him catch the ball like this, I'm like, man, this guy's a master. For music, this is a little embarrassing. So for music, I'll rewatch clips of Lauren Hill singing Joyful, Joyful, <laughs> or His Eyes on the Sparrow from Sister Act 2. And in, in the second clip, this nun like interrupts Lauren Hill singing and she stops singing and I get so mad at that nun every time because there's something like divine about the way that she hits certain notes. And this one is really embarrassing. So there's this one clip of Jason Mraz at a concert in Taipei. And he's singing this song, and he sees this Asian dude in the audience, like, sh doing a shaker. So he calls up this Asian dude and says, come on, Asian dude, come play this shaker and sing with me, or just play with me. So he goes up there, and he starts playing. And as the song gets started, this dorky Asian guy with glasses and his shirt tucked into his jeans you know he looks just like me he starts singing in perfect harmony and then you can see his face go like oh my god and then everybody else in the audience starts going oh my god and you know I'm not like a Jason Mraz fan or anything but when I see that video which I've seen like a hundred times 
I get like filled with this like excitement because that was my dream when I was a kid. <laughs> like I dreamt that I'd go to a Metallica concert and James Hetfield would be like, come on up, somebody want to play electric guitar for us? And I go, yes, I want to play. And then I get to play with them and then experience like this being plucked from obscurity thing. To fill our hearts with joy, many of us find ways to relive past experiences. Maybe you'll scroll through your iPhone photos and look at pictures of your kids before they knew how to talk back and before they knew how to complain and when they were all just smiley and cute. Uh, maybe there's a restaurant you go to. Maybe there's a dish that you eat. Maybe there's a movie that you watch. We relive these past experiences to get ourselves out of the present moment. But like new experiences, looking for joy only in that place loses its power over time and that well starts to dry up. But the biggest thing I think that keeps us from really experiencing joy is something that we haven't even mentioned yet. And I think this is probably obvious. And this is as we age, our hearts get broken. And it starts when we realize that our parents are flawed human beings. Like the first time you saw your elementary school teacher smoke, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I trusted you. And John Steinbeck describes it like this. It's like God's falling and not falling a little bit but crashing and shattering and sinking deeply into the green muck. And as life progresses, we accumulate other negative experiences that continue to haunt us. And one of the most powerful ones of these are our failures. And these are times that like you were called on in class but you didn't do any of the reading and you were asked a question and you started feeling that sweat in your armpits and then you got all nervous and then you look like an idiot in front of everybody. Or it's a time where you're around your crush and then you say this like corny thing and then they give you like the eye roll and you're like, oh no, they're never going to like me. Or it's also times where, you know, you blew up at your kid for no reason because you were having a bad day and then you're like, ah, I wish I could take that back. Every memory of these types of failures still have raw nerve endings to them. And every time we remember them, we still kind of cringe or shake with like shame and embarrassment. And they're like a phantom limb that we still feel. And it's interesting because physiologically, I think our bodies are wired to make negative experiences stand out. So for example, your taste buds are much more sensitive to bitter tastes than they are to sweet ones. And scientists conjecture that this is because it's a hangover from our ancient ancestors. It was important back then to be able to quickly discern what was poisonous and what was not and to really experience it in a powerful way so that you would never eat that thing again. As we go through life, the number of negative experiences begin to accumulate and the vast and blissful play areas that we delighted in as children has turned into this haunted graveyard filled with memories of past hurts and feelings. Depressing. Depressing. But it's precisely at this moment in the sad world of shrinking delight and growing discontent that Acts 5 breaks in and unleashes springs of spiritual joy that we didn't even know were there. Verses 39 and 41 again say, So they, that is the Jewish leadership, took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The apostles were beaten up for preaching the gospel, and verse 41 tells us that they rejoiced because of it. Now that is a strange reaction. 
I can't remember the last time I got beaten up. Oh, I used to wrestle. And uh, I was on the wrestling team, but then I never made weight. And the guy right above me was like really um, good. So they had to bump me up two weight classes. So I should have been wrestling 135, but instead I was wrestling 155. And this guy basically broke my collarbone. And then I was like, you know, I was in high school, so I was like keeping it together. My mom always reminds me as soon as she picked me up, I started sobbing and crying, right? So that's the normal reaction to when you get beaten up, not to rejoice and be like, yes, my busted collarbone. And Peter and the disciples react this way, and it's super strange, and we discover something surprising about joy from that reaction. And the first thing that we discover is that there can be joy in failure. There can be joy in failure. So Peter and the disciples are not really like likely heroes for the early church. Throughout the book of Acts, the, the writer keeps telling us these are ordinary, uneducated men. These are ordinary and uneducated men. And when you read through the Gospels, their flaws are like so obvious. There's all these little kids. They're so cute. And they're kind of come and play with Jesus. And the disciples are like, get out of here, you little kid. Who yells at little kids trying to get to Jesus? The disciples do. And not only that, when Jesus is in the garden, sweating drops of blood, praying profusely because he's worried about his death, he turns to his friends and says, guys, can you please just pray with me? And they go, okay. And they fall asleep. Like, you know, the navigator on a long car ride who's supposed to give you directions back when, you know, before navigation system. And they just fall asleep on you. And that's exactly what the disciples are like. Probably the most famous well-known anecdote that captures this is Peter's denial. Now, the night that that Jesus was arrested, Peter was arrogant. He said, I will never leave you. I will always be loyal. Even if everyone else goes away, I will stick by your side. But Jesus predicted that that very night, Peter would deny him. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the Jewish leadership. And Peter follows, but like in a cowardly way, doesn't like make himself known. He kind of sits by the fire and kind of looks at what's going on. A little girl asks him, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, no. Two other people ask him, you must be his disciples because you talk with the same accent. And he says, not only am I not his follower, I don't even know him, I've never met him. And right at that moment, he makes eye contact with Jesus, he remembers what Jesus told him, and he starts weeping bitterly because he realizes at his heart, he is not that proud and loyal friend. He is this disloyal coward. Eerily, Peter had failed, and in Acts chapter 5, it takes place not that long after that night. And like a strange case of deja vu, Peter is put in nearly the exact same situation. He's facing the same exact people who had decided a year earlier to put Jesus to death, only this time he responds in a completely different way. He doesn't run away, even when he's miraculously freed from prison, he doesn't deny Jesus. But when he's asked why he keeps on preaching, he steadfastly replies, I must obey God rather than men. And even though he was beaten up for it, Acts chapter 5 verses 41 tells us that Peter rejoiced. In the exact spot where he failed miserably, Peter now found joy. So what accounts for this difference? In a word, the Holy Spirit. 
In the first part of Acts, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles in tongues of fire. And when this happened, Peter was able to grasp with his whole heart the entire significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Without Christ, Peter is right to be ashamed of his cowardice and to do everything in his power to avoid being placed in that same situation again. But with Christ, he understands that his past failure is not just a painful reminder of his weakness. It is the perfect receptacle for God's grace, an opportunity for him to display his unfailing love and to use our weakness for his glory. As God told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This passage teaches us, first, that we can find joy even in our deepest failures. And this truth has the potential to change the way dramatically that we live our lives. All of us have these certain failures, these key defining moments in our lives, that when we think about them now, they still fill our heart with shame. So if you're married, maybe there's this one area that you and your spouse keep fighting over constantly. And at this point, you've kind of settled into a strategy of mutual avoidance. Let's just not talk about that. And this passage challenges that strategy because it fills those painful failures, those painful moments, those areas that are negative with hope. That exact spot that has caused your marriage so much pain is where you can experience joy with the Spirit's help. Maybe professionally, there's an area where you've never been able to find success. Maybe it's managing certain types of people, speaking up for yourself, maybe tackling a certain responsibility in your job that you know is expected of you, but that you're avoiding because you're not good at it, like Ben Simmons and nailing an outside jumper. This passage holds out possibility that those areas of failure, those places where you're no good, can become the soil for profound joy. So what failures are you running away from? What are the things with raw nerve endings that are keeping you from experiencing God's presence? At those exact moments, God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That exact spot is the place where you can find joy. But Acts 5, verses 39 and 41, not only tell us that the apostles found joy in past failure, but they also found joy in suffering. And on this point, actually, their past failure is of monumental importance because it signals to us that these guys are not crazy, that they're not masochists, they're not the type of people who enjoy pain. In their natural selves, they avoid it just like all of us. But by Acts chapter 5, they're able to rejoice in their sufferings because the Spirit had taught them a powerful truth. Suffering is the path to glory. Now looking back, you realize that throughout the book of Acts, the apostles, emboldened by the Spirit, fixated on one key historical fact. And that fact was Jesus did not deserve to die and he did not deserve to suffer, but he did. And through that suffering, he found glory. And when you think back about your life, especially from a Christian perspective, it's obvious that the greatest moments of joy have always come on the heels of suffering. So two quick examples. Last month, we prayed for people who are sick or people who have people who are close to them that are sick. And, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs that come with that. And it obviously reminded me of when my father was sick 13 years ago and ultimately passed. 
Now, the whole ordeal unfolded over the course of two years. There's a lot of ups and downs. Your emotions go up and down. And it was also a period filled with intense suffering and hardship, obviously for my dad, but also for my family. But looking back, that suffering laid the, found, the groundwork for seeds of glory. They ex- that experience cemented the hope of the resurrection in my heart and then forged in me this conviction that even though now in the present moment I miss my father, I know that one day because of Christ I'll see him again and I'll give him a hug. And that hope gives me joy. More recently, this past year has been marked with prolonged suffering. And going through it, there's been very little to celebrate, very little to rejoice in. But on May 16th, our church met for the first time in person in over a year. And during that service, we sang a song. said, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. And being here, singing those words amongst God's people who I missed, brought me joy because it cemented the conviction that God's faithfulness does not fail. It will not fail. If all we have (coughs) in this world is the experiences that are available to us and our own strength, then joy is a rare resource that vanishes with age. But with the Spirit, there's a change because joy can be found in the places that we least expected it. The Spirit gives us joy in our failures and it gives us joy in our suffering. So in closing, there's just one thing that I wanted to say. And we've been focusing a lot on joy, but the reminder is this. Joy is not a goal. Joy is a byproduct. To structure our life as a pursuit for joy is like a plant yearning to produce more oxygen. Remember sixth grade and photosynthesis and how plants take carbon dioxide, turn it into oxygen? Okay, so oxygen is a byproduct, and plants don't aim to produce more oxygen. They aim to face the sun. And in the same way, joy should not be the thing that you are longing for. It's a byproduct that comes from knowing Christ and obeying him. Throughout the book of Acts, Peter does not tell people who have failed, and he does not tell people who have gone through intense suffering, hey, be more joyful. Instead, he tells them, repent, be filled with the Spirit, and follow Christ. Aim to know Christ and to follow him and to be filled with his Spirit. And when you do that, joy will naturally follow. It's a joy that conquers failures, and it's a joy that shines through even our deepest suffering. Let's pray. Uh, Why don't we just take a moment and um, fix our eyes on just those two areas. Maybe there is a failure in your past that has more of an effect on your life than it should. It causes you to avoid certain types of people, certain types of situations. It causes you to settle for so much less than what God has in store for you. Acts 5 reminds us that in that moment of failure, in that exact spot, the Spirit can give you joy. Maybe for some of us, I think for a lot of us, 
Um, we're going through a time of suffering, a time of hardship. <sighs> maybe not right now, maybe not right in this moment, but this passage is a reminder that even through suffering, there can be glory. And when there's glory, there can be joy. Have assurance that no matter what you're going through, the Spirit is there. And when you fix your eyes on Him and when you follow Christ, there can be joy even in the midst of that darkness. Why don't we just take a minute and meditate on those things, and then after a bit, I'll uh, lift up a prayer for us, and then um, Dave will lead us in a time of worship. lift up a quick prayer for us. God, we just thank you so much that your spirit is full of surprises. And on our own, there's so many things that we experience that causes pain that we just want to run away from. But this passage is a reminder that it's in those exact spots that we can experience profound joy when your spirit is there. So my prayer is very simple, God. I pray that you'd fill Good News Church with the Holy Spirit. I pray that it would embolden us to fix our eyes on you and to see that in Christ we have somebody who gives us forgiveness, somebody who gives us grace, somebody whose power is made perfect in weakness. Fill our church with your Spirit, not just so that we can feel better about life and about ourselves, but so that we can obey you and go to the places that you're calling us to go. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.